In this episode of Theology Applied, I asked Pastor Tom Askell, President of Founders Ministries, to explain what he sees as the three biggest threats currently facing the Southern Baptist Convention, as well as the ensuing battle for biblical faithfulness. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. All right, so I'm privileged to have as a special guest on this particular episode, Pastor Tom Askell. Pastor Tom Askell is a local pastor in Florida. He's also the president of Founders Ministries. Uh, he serves both at the local church level and with Founders Ministries um, alongside Jared Longshore, who's uh, a guest that we've had on this show in the past. And so today, uh, Tom, I, I want to talk to you about the SBC and some of the, the looming threats that you see um, kind of down the pipeline with the SBC and maybe some that are already upon it. But before we get into it, uh, could you just take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners, who you are, w- what your ministry is about, uh, just so they get a sense of who, who we're interviewing tonight? Sure. Well, uh, I'm a local church pastor. I pastor the Grace Baptist Church of Cape Coral, Florida. I've been doing that for 35 years. And before that, I was a pastor of a church in College Station, Texas, and then an assistant pastor of a church in Dallas, Texas. I went to school at Texas A&M and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Moved here with two kids, uh, two-year-old and six-month-old. And now we've got six kids and uh, 14 grandkids. And we're just uh, having a wonderful time. God's been very kind to me in this church. I also uh, was a part of the original seven men that that started Founders Ministries back in 1982. So I've been involved with that. I've been the president of that for, uh, I don't know, a long time, 20, 25 years, something like that. And then we just this last December, December of 2020, we announced the opening of the Institute of Public Theology which will begin classes, God willing, in a couple of months in the fall of 2021. And I'm serving as a professor, founding faculty there, along with Bodie Balkum and Tom Nettles and my uh, co-pastor, our associate pastor, Jared Longshore. And I'm the president of that as well. So I've been involved in those kind of things, but it all stems out of my role as pastor at Grace Baptist Church here in Cape Coral. That's great. Is uh, Tom Nettles, is he still on the board with Founders or, or has he... Transition. No, he re- he resigned off of that uh, board in late 2019, okay. but he's still very okay. much active with us, uh, writing and speaking for us. And of course, being a founding faculty at, at uh, the institute, I mean, I, I was I was delighted about that to see mm-hmm. him and Vody and Jared and myself be able to come together in a vision that we share in common to uh, get this institute launched. And I'm expecting some uh, some wonderful things to come out of it under God's blessing. Praise God. Um, so I saw, I saw a trailer recently that you guys did, and not the infamous trailer of uh, By What Standard, which was a fantastic documentary, by the way, really helpful, very clear and informative. And I like that trailer, and I like Chalk Knox and some of those guys who were a part of it. But uh, that, that said, you know, I know not everybody was a fan of that particular trailer, although I hope that they at least gave the documentary a try, because I think that that was really helpful. But there's a new trailer that I, I, I haven't seen it, but I've been hearing it because I listened to the podcast platform of uh, The Sword and the Trowel. What, what, is that, what is that new project that you guys are rolling out? It was like yeah. somebody was interviewing, do you think women should be pastors? And it was like, I can't comment on that. You know, right. uh, well, Zonder Van or whatever, or Crossway. Yeah, a lot, a lot of that was Lifeway, but a lot of that was taken okay. out of uh, the documentary we did in 2019 by what standard 
as you said, and that's that's gone literally around the world. But we did that along with some fresh footage in order to promote this conference that we have coming up in Nashville. Because the Southern Baptist Convention in 2019, the last time the annual meeting met in Birmingham, adopted a resolution at the very last minute, I mean, literally in the last few, four or five minutes of the convention on critical race theory and intersectionality, calling them useful analytical tools. And I spoke against it. Uh, my friend Tom Buck spoke against it. I offered some amendments to try to uh, um, take some of the sting out of it and to, to help people to understand when we adopted, if we did, which it looked like we were going to, that there's really some bad stuff embedded in CRT and intersectionality. But nevertheless, my amendments were uh, rejected, but the resolution itself passed. And <clears throat> so everybody's been talking about Resolution 9 since then. I mean, even the people that voted for it, many of the people I've talked to folks and some have come out publicly and said, you know, I have one friend of mine, he said, I got a PhD. He said, I just trusted the committee. He said, but I didn't know. I, I wasn't familiar with critical race and intersectionality when this, right. this debate erupts at the last minute. He said, but I trusted the committee. So I voted for the committee's recommendation. And that was the case of a lot of people. I, I would right. say conservatively, uh, there couldn't have been 10 to 15% of the people in the room that ha had any understanding at all of critical race theory intersectionality in 2019. Right. But and it was radically different than, it, sorry to interrupt, but it was radically different. What was proposed in, in that oh, yeah. convention was radically different than the original resolution. So Vody Bauckham, I know that, you know, you guys are friends and so I, I'm sure you're aware, but I, I'm about two thirds through Fault Lines, his newest book, and I've been blessed by it. And I love the chapter. I just, you know, finished the chapter where he actually kind of puts up side by side, comparing and contrasting the original resolution, which was just overtly against CRT, and then and right. then the way that it got amended. Uh, but it wasn't an amendment. It, it was an entirely different resolution that was right. pro CRT as an analytical <laughs> tool, right? Like, you know, <laughs> that, you know, we can use, you know, socialism as an analytical tool and it has nothing to do with Marxism. And, it, you know, the, the idea that you can completely separate or divorce um, a tool that only it, it operates on the premise on, you know, of that that there are the oppressed and the oppressors and you know all these all these different things and so uh, anyways it was just funny to me to see what the original resolution was going to be and then correct me if I'm wrong but one of the ways it was a last minute effort but it was also uh, they tried to wrap it in in a block right resolutions nine right. through thirteen to just vote as a block. And I think I remember the footage of you down on the floor saying, no, no, is that, is yeah. that right? That's yeah. correct. I was pleading with them. I was begging with them to uh, <laughs> yeah. not do that. And fortunately they did unbundle those last four or five resolutions right. and we dealt with them one by one. But you know, the resolutions committee has the authority to do whatever they want to with any resolution that's submitted to them. They don't have to bring it out. They can, they can edit it, they can rewrite it, you know, mm -hmm. but what I thought was disingenuous in the way they handled resolution nine is they kept the original uh, recommenders, the, the original submitters name on the resolution. They kept the, the original name of the resolution, but then they gutted it. They, they completely changed it, as you said. Right. And so I, I've said to the people on that committee and others who have asked us, I think it's disingenuous at best. That's the best I can say is it was a disingenuous move. But as a result, Southern Baptist, along with everybody else in the nation now since 2020, has been talking about 
critical race theory and intersectionality, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, you, you, you can hardly not have an opinion about uh, these ideologies today. So everybody's talking about Resolution 9, and I intend to, to work hard to see Resolution 9 rescinded at this convention, and certainly a, 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 res, a, a resolution adopted that will repudiate it. But what we decided to do as founders is in the Monday before the Tuesday and Wednesday, which the SBC actually meets, to hold a one-day conference, which we've done in the past, but to build it around Be It Resolved. And so our tagline is everybody's talking about resolution. It's time to finally show some. And so we've invited speakers to come in to address the issue of what does it mean to be a Christian with biblical resolve? And we'll be looking at that from different angles. So we got Tom Nettles and um, Mark Coppinger will be with us, James Pittman and uh, will be with us, Tom Buck, Jim Scott Ork, who was dismissed from Southern Seminary last year will be with us as well. And James Pittman uh, from Chicago, pastor there, uh, will be with us. I think there's some others as well. But anyway, it's going to be a great, great one-day conference in Nashville. So that's what that trailer was about, the Be It Resolved okay. conference gotcha. coming up. Got you. And who is, um, I, I listened to, I know his first name's Mike, but the guy that you are with founders endorsing as uh, the potential next president of the SBC, what, what is his last name? Yeah. Mike Stone and, you know, founders isn't Stone. endorsing him. We don't really do that, but I'm voting for him and I would encourage everybody to do it. So well, it uh, seemed like an endorsement. You, know, you, <laughs> you know, guys no, definitely seem very that. pro Mike Stone. So well, go well, ahead. I think he's the best candidate. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, right. I don't know Randy Adams well, but I like the things Randy Adams says. And if he became president, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be upset about it, but he, he is a, a denominational servant. And so he's, I don't think he's been a pastor. If he has, it hasn't been very long. And then Al Mohler, you know, of course, Al's brilliant and he's been at Southern and done a good work there for a lot of years, uh, but he's not a pastor. He had never really been a pastor except for a year or two when he was a liberal and, and you know, he did, he did what he advocated women pastors when he was a pastor. So I'm grateful that he's not there anymore. Um, and then the other guy, Ed Litton, who is a pastor, I never met him, but he's a pastor who really promotes, you know, the woke agenda. I mean, he's unashamed about that. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's been, he came out and said he was against women preachers. And then there's video showing up about his wife and him preaching together. And she says, this is our last sermon, <laughs> you know, here at the church. And I mean, I, you know, Mike Stone, on the other hand, is a straight shooter. You know, Mike and I disagree theologically on some things. But man, we agree on so much and we agree on these issues that are confronting not just the convention, but the evangelical world and our nation and really the Western civilization right now. And he sees them clearly and he's unapologetic in his repudiation of them. And so uh, I think we need a pastor like Mike Stone to right. step into the leadership of the convention today. Well, yeah, I, I agree. I like what you said on that particular podcast that it's, you know, it's he, yes, he's he's got the courage, he's got the spine, he's going to be willing to stand up and actually say something. And, um, but it's also, it is unique to the position of being a local pastor, that you have the experience Absolutely. of a pastor, the heart of a pastor, but also it's the fact that there's no hooks in you. Um, that, right. You know, that like that, because if you're if you're making decisions as the president of, of the convention, um, and you get your paycheck from that, you know, from from one of those flagship seminaries, or whatever it might be, um, let's, let's attribute it, you know, charitably the, the best of sure. intentions to those individuals. Um, but still it just, I mean, I would be, I would have some temptation. I would, you know, so no matter where, where you're at and how good of a man you are, it's just, you're still going to have an extra, an added measure of temptation to overcome, uh, to not be biased, uh, to not, 
seek your long-term security in your day job because that, correct me if I'm wrong, but the presidency, it's two years. It's a short term. Is that right? Right. Yeah, it's one year, but uh, it's typically the second year is given kind of just pro forma. And yeah, you're right about that. But in addition, um, I I want a man leading us who week by week is looking at people who are in the world and being chewed up and spit out if they're not being equipped to stand against the stuff that's coming uh, in our churches today. And I mean, we have it in our church. I've talked to Mike. He's got it in his church. I mean, I don't know a pastor that's been uh, involved very long in trying to address these issues. It does not have people in their churches that are suffering because of these ideologies and and people losing jobs, people losing promotions, people being kind of coerced out of positions. And and I want a man who, who has to shepherd a flock to stand before the SBC and say, brothers and sisters, this is the way we need to go. This is the line that we cannot cross. And we need a pastor to do that. And I think Mike Stone is, is that pastor. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Well, let's just go ahead and get into that really kind of, you know, because we're already talking about looming threats and things that, you know, at least threat, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's too big of a word, but at least concerns, things that you see here presently and things that could be coming in in a fuller measure that would not be faithful to God's word um, for the SBC. I'm so for myself, I'm Reformed Baptist. We're uh, Second London Baptist, 1689 to the T, Sabbatarian, um, all of that congregational and the congregational aspects and elder rule with mm-hmm. with the other things. And so like that elder led congregationalism. Um, and so I, I know that you know, I would get along great with founders, but I'm not actually a part of the SBC, but I care about the SBC because I care about Christianity and it makes up a right. massive portion of it. So I don't know how yeah. any evangelical couldn't be concerned about what God does <laughs> with with the SBC. And so that being said, um, this is an arbitrary number three. It could be two, it could be four, it could be five. But what, what are the three biggest, give or take, um, threats that you see the SBC facing in, in the near future, the next two to five years? Yeah, well, I do think that um, let me let me start with what I think is is the thing that got us into this mess, and it's pragmatism. Now, I think that we have operated pragmatically for so long that it's kind of become baked into the DNA, even with good people, even with people that affirm the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, even with people. I need to say that in many respects, some of them, they stand against CRT and intersectionality and these things. They're, they are opposed to what they see as this, this onslaught of uh, neo-Marxism and postmodernism in our culture and in our churches. And yet, when you start in, engaging them and talking to them about practical theology and how the church should live and what... Uh, ministry should look like and what true Christianity is and what discipleship is and what pietism, true pietism is, uh, you begin to find pretty quickly that underneath a lot of the things that they are proposing is a pragmatism that is not grounded in a world and life view that comes out of scripture. And that is not taking the the basics of the scripture seriously enough to apply them across the board. Uh, Things like Genesis 1-1, that this is God's world. He rules the world. Jesus Christ is king of everything. He's Lord over all. And we don't get to make it up as we go. That's especially true in the church. And I see that happening a lot. I see brothers that love Jesus. They love the Bible. They preach the Bible. But then they come up with all kinds of ideas about this is a better way to do church. 
And they've got, they got limits, but the limits are not put on them by conscientious application of biblical theology. The limits are usually by, by some kind of intuition or um, you know, other things that are kind of governing them. So I think pragmatism is massive. It's been that way. I mean, it's been, that's, that's kind of like Americana, you know, Americans are pragmatic and there's some value in that. We want to be practical. We don't want to just be theoretical, but pragmatism, when it becomes the overarching paradigm and the overarching ideology that, that makes our decisions for us, then we're in real trouble because at, at that point we're losing, we're, we're leaving what the Bible says about this is God's way, and this is the way He's told us not to go. Right. So that's one. So Most real quick, so pragmatism yeah, sure. is your first one, and that really gets into just for our listeners for them to know that gets into the regulative principle and the normative principle of worship. Right. The normative principle of worship basically says that we can do anything that God doesn't forbid in His Word and in, in Scripture. But whereas the regulative principle, it's not saying regulative meaning regular principle, but regulated that God's Word we're only going to do that which God prescribes. Um, so rather mm. than just avoiding things that God doesn't forbid, it's it's sticking to the and I think that's part of, you're saying, you know, Americans are pragmatic. And I would say, I would add to that, I would say they're pragmatic. And part of it is Americans, they, they tend to be creative. And there's some good elements of that. Absolutely. But um, American, that is that entrepreneurial, you know, sea to shining sea, pioneer type, you know, the American experiment, even that I where, when yes, it is the American experiment, but really, the American experiment is really just sticking to the script. And so we need the regular principle, especially on the Lord's day for worship, because God prescribes his ordinary means of grace, very specific <clears throat> things that the church does. But then we also broader than that, we, we really need Christians to begin to submit to the regular principle for all of Christian life, uh, Monday through Saturday, that we're living in accordance with what God says. And there just seem to be a lot of Christians, I completely agree with you, and a lot of pastors in particular, um, that at the end of the day, I, th- I think they just, I, I don't know, is it, they, it seems like they just, they, they think that they have a better idea of how to do things in God. But ba- back to yeah. you. But I just... Yeah, yeah. And I would, you know, I'm a regulative principle guy too in worship. Uh, and I've got friends that are not, that, that are not pragmatic. And so I want to make a distinction there. We have some fun conversations about those things but they're trying to be biblical. And so whenever you, know, you say being following the regulative principle in life, well, the scripture doesn't talk about all of life the way it does talk about the corporate worship of God's people. So I'm sure what you mean by that's what I would mean by it is that we need to be biblical. We're not free to make it up. And so the, one, of the, one of the lost doctrines of the evangelicalism and, and the reform community has it, we should, but even in the reform community, I find that this is so often sublimated. It's not given pride of praise like it ought to, is law and gospel, that God has commanded what is right, what is wrong, and he has provided salvation for those who have broken what is right and what is wrong. So the law guides us, governs us, rules us, the gospel saves us. And when we are saved by the gospel, the law no longer, or the law doesn't get jettisoned away from us. No, this is still God's revealed will. And what God has commanded, we must do. What he's forbidden, we must not do. But what he has not commanded and not forbidden, well, then that breaks open this area of Christian liberty that we are to seek to live in accordance with the general principles of God's word, always operating in light of what is best, what is wise, and then finally, what will most glorify God? And so to be regulated by the scripture in our daily lives is going to look differently than in worship, because in worship, God has given us pretty specific things that we must do in worship. And I'm satisfied with those things. And, and we see both Old and New Testament uh, things going really badly 
whenever folks begin to kind of make it up in terms of how they're going to go about worship and, and like the, the Lord's strange Day fire kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a helpful distinction. So you're saying that you could be a normative principle guy and yet still not be a pragmatist. And you wanted, well, wanted to make that distinction. I think that's helpful. Go ahead. Yeah. And there, I mean, I've got one friend and he's neither regulative nor normative, at least in his own understanding, how he approaches it. And I forget the exact term he uses, but we've had some good conversations and I listen to him and I think, okay, you know, I mean, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't do it exactly that way, but, but he's trying to be biblical. He's trying to be trying to tie what he sees ought to be done in worship to scripture. And man, if we can just start there, you know, if we can just have that conversation, uh, that'll be, that'll be miles down the road of where we are today in a lot of circles. So pragmatism is number one. And then arising out of that, I think this is why we've been so easily played by the neo-Marxist postmodern agenda that's just come in like a flood over the last five years, and especially the last two years of uh, critical race theory, intersectionality, uh, critical theory at large, this idea that the world is best understood in terms of the oppressor oppressed categories and that the most important thing about you is which one of those you're in or how many of those you are in and your, your intersectional score being dependent upon the number of oppressive classes that you can lay claim to and whenever you're not grounded in the word of god with a kind of a rock ribbed uh, solidity then somebody comes and says well this is unjust you know you're not being just if you don't think this, or you don't say this, or you don't do this. Well, Christians, we want to be just. And when they say, well, you're not being loving if you don't do this, and this unloving if you don't do this, well, you know, we're set up because of our, our kind of default mechanism to be sympathetic. We're called upon to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. When our neighbors start telling us, look, you have offended me. You're hurting me. You're literally killing me. Your, your words are violence to me. Well, if you're not grounded in God's word, then you can hear that and you hear, oh man, I didn't mean to do that. You know, I'm sorry, help me to figure it out. And a lot of Christians have been duped and in the process have exposed just how superficial their grounding is in thinking biblically. And I'll just say it this, this bluntly, that when somebody says, hey, you offended me, therefore you must apologize to me. Not necessarily, not necessarily. I want to repent over real sin. But if I've not sinned against you, you you might still be offended. Jesus offended people. People were offended at Jesus. He never sinned. He didn't need to repent. And now that doesn't mean that we have a a blank check to go around acting like a jerk and dismissing anything anybody would ever say to us by way of criticism. But it does mean that every criticism and every complaint and every accusation needs to be brought to the word of God. And what's going on today in this woke agenda, this woke culture, is that people are being intimidated by these words like you're a misogynist or you're a racist. That's all you are. You're a racist. You're, you participate. You're complicit in this racist uh, way of living that we have been brought up in in the Western civilization, especially America. And you know nobody wants to be called a racist. Nobody wants to be called a misogynist. And if you're going to let that affect you, then you're going to be intimidated into thinking and doing things that will wind up, lead you away from God's word. And as I got my mind around this stuff the last few years, my response to those people, it boils down to this, 
nah, not true. And you can accuse me of white fragility, but I don't care. I don't care what your judgments are if your judgments are not based on the word of God. If you're wanting to open the Bible, come to me and talk to me about concerns you have with me with an open Bible. Let's have that conversation. I'm for it every day. But don't come with all your presuppositions that are born out of a postmodern neo-Marxist ideology and say, because of this, uh, you need to own these accusations. No, I don't. I completely I agree. It reminds me, I think Doug Wilson has done some really good work on this and some great thoughts, but uh, just the concept of establishing peace on a foundation of lies, using lies yeah. as the means towards the end of peace. And, you know, he'll, he'll use as kind of like an illustration, something that many people can associate with and understand. He'll use a marriage and he'll talk about, you know, the proverbial husband who is tempted um, to uh, with the, the nagging wife in this ha hypothetical situation. Lots of wives are wonderful. But, you know, in this hypothetical situation, a nagging wife and a really just kind of spineless, apathetic husband who's not washing his wife in the word, who's not leading her. And, and so rather than telling her the truth in the name of peacemaking, uh, he tells her what she wants to hear, even though he knows that it is objectively untrue. Um, it's not in accordance with God's word. It's counter to God's word. And so ultimately what's happening is you're making peace by deception. And, uh, and you know, it's a house of cards. It's, you know, you can't, you can't build a house of peace on a foundation of deception. And I think that's, I, I just saying this to say, I agree with you. I think that um, the goodwill of Christians is being preyed upon. It's, you know, the, right. the, you know that, that, that sentiment of compassion. And of course the political left loves to use empathy, 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 empathy. But we, we do believe regardless of where you're at with empathy and whether or not that's a Christian virtue or vice, uh, we do believe in um, in compassion, sympathy, sympathy comes from um, the word compassion in Scripture. So we do believe in compassion. It's a biblical principle. Christians are commanded to exercise compassion. Um, but we've we got to remember Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs eighteen seventeen. the first person states his case, you know, and, and he's thought right until another one cross-examines him. And we've, I, we've realized in our culture at large, and I've seen it play out in the church at local church levels, um, that that the victim is determined by whoever gets there first in most right. cases, you know, so it's whoever can run into the room first, whoever can run into the pastor's office first, whoever, I mean, and we, we can see this even in our homes as Christian men and fathers, if we're not careful, you know, then, you know, wh whichever one of the kids comes in and in crying first, you know, and then if, you know, tears just, you know, you automatically win because, because you're upset because you're crying. Um, without actually investigating the matter, uh, because the reality is we're sinners. I, I have cried tears of godly sorrow, and I have cried tears of worldly sorrow, like Esau, who sought the blessing with tears, but not because he loved God. And, and so just because someone's crying or because they're hurt doesn't mean that they should be hurt, doesn't mean that it's a, a righteous um, suffering or a righteous pain, and that doesn't mean that we don't still love them and care for them, but, but the means of love, how we love, what kind of love that we offer, because sometimes the love that someone needs, even someone while hurting needs, is actually a loving correction. And, and certainly we want to be extra sympathetic and careful and gentle as we correct someone who's in pain. Um, but I think we, we've just truncated everything and, and, and oversimplified it so much to where if someone claims to be hurting, then, then we validate their feelings, whatever they are. And, and, 
to make in the name of peace. But mm-hmm. but but what we're doing is we're making peace by deception, and that that's ultimately it's going to that foundation is going to fracture, and eventually, like like Bodhi Bauckham's book, Fault Lines, there's going to be a tectonic shift, and I think that's part of what we're seeing now. Do you have any further thoughts yeah. on that? Would you agree with that or push back? No, on absolutely. That or- no, yeah, you're exactly right about that. And God, God is love. God defines love. And so you don't get to define love and make it up. And people can come and say, well, you're not loving me or you, you were unloving to me. Well, we need to, you know, not, not just uh, laugh that off and dismiss it out of hand, but we need to make sure we're thinking biblically about it. Um, because love rejoices in the truth, First Corinthians 13 says. So if, if I say to you, hey, Joel, you know, man, uh, uh, you really hurt my feelings whenever you didn't uh, wave at me the other day and you owe me an apology. And, I, you know, and I'm, I'm, if you want to apologize, we just you, you're, you've created this great offense. And so you need to repent and apologize to me or else we can't go forward. And we're going we're gonna to have this disruption in our relationship. Well, if you apologize to me and you can make peace, but as you said, it's peace built upon something that's not true or may not be true, or even if it is true, it's so incidental for me to make an issue of it and to live that way. Uh, you're not helping me. You're not helping me by just kind of patching it over. It's, oh, you poor soul. I'm so sorry. I'll try not to do it again. No, I mean, I'm a Christian. My, my master was crucified. I'm to take my cross every day. Uh, and if I'm going to go around and, and let the fact that somebody doesn't wave at me, offend me, or if I'm just going to go ahead and make the narrative in my head, see there, I knew Joel was a racist because, uh, you know, and he didn't wave at me. So that just proves it. Well, there may be a thousand things that could explain all of that, even legitimate potential offenses. And if you let me believe a lie and you then act on that, you're not loving me. You're crippling me. You're crippling me. And I need to learn how to live by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's not it. If I am operating with this type of uh, attitude or narrative in my mind that just trumps everything, um, it's contrary to the way of Jesus. I mean, love covers a multitude of sins. And again, our Lord was crucified. He was slaughtered. And we're to take up our cross and follow him. And if I'm going to go around looking at everybody suspiciously and making sure everybody dots their I's and crosses their T's or else I think that they're just misogynistic, racist, and they uh, somehow have it in for me or they don't love God or they're unjust. Um, yeah, I'm not going to play that game. I'm right. just not. Well, what we're, old, we're doing something. Short. No, I, I, I completely agree. And what we're doing is we're doing something that the Bible strictly forbids us from doing. What we're doing is we're imputing motives. Um, and at the end of the day, there is a sense in which we can look at the outward expressions of a man, both his words and deeds, and we can discern in a biblical fashion the heart, right? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You'll know a tree by its fruit. And so we don't know the heart. God, you know, man looks to the outward appearance, but God looks to the heart. There is, however, biblically speaking, a sense in which man can see the heart, as it were, um, through fruit, through the outward expressions, the fruit of the spirit or the fruit of, of, of the flesh, both in word and in deed, um, but even if we see bad fruit, because I love what you said. So let's say in that hypothetical scenario, one of the bases that you covered, you said it might actually be a legitimate offense. But then, but then we go and and we begin to impute the motives for that offense. So let's say it is just undeniable. Doesn't matter what excuse they have. 
Um, this actually was an offense. It wasn't just an oversight or an honest mistake. Like I, you know, I didn't wave and say hi to you, or I cut in front of you in line at the coffee shop because I didn't know you were in line. You were standing far back from the register. It's, it's not something like that. That's a actual oversight, but this is a, a, a bona fide offense. Uh, but even with that bona fide offense to say immediately that it was racist, for example, is to, cause, cause honestly you can be a jerk without being a racist. It, it, so right. it could still be an offense. Um, and it could still be a form of pride. Uh, it could even still be a form of prejudice without it being a race based or ethnic based mm. prejudice. There are other, other reasons for people to be prejudiced or, or for people to be arrogant or for, for someone not to consider the feelings of someone else. So we're doing something. I say that to say we're doing something. Ultimately, the Bible forbids us um, from doing. We can, we can, even with the church, when it comes to church discipline and correcting our brothers and sisters, and you know, if your, your brother sins against you, go to him privately, tell him his fault. If he listens, you've won him over. If not, take one or two along with you. All, all of this, this church discipline, correcting all the one another's um, what we're doing at the end of the day is we're addressing what's visible, what's uh, what's outward, what's witnessable. That's the idea of witnesses. With biblical law, we get it from the Old Testament, two or three witnesses. Jesus includes that same language in Matthew 18. Uh, but the idea of a witness is it's something outward. We're not, we're not witnesses of the heart. We don't have, you know, there are sins and crimes. That's really a really helpful concept that's helped me a lot in the last couple of years. And you and Jared have talked about it a lot, but um, we want police for murder, but nobody wants nobody wants the coveting police. <laughs> coveting is a sin, but I don't want anybody you know trying to police coveting because it's not outward, it's not visible, it's not witnessable. And I think as Christians, when we start imputing motives to people's hearts, um, even if it's a legitimate offense, we say it was an offense because of this heart sin. This one, when it could have been a host of other ones. Uh, then we've really stepped outside of our bounds, our jurisdiction, as as um, finite creatures. We're not. We're just. Mm-hmm. We're not God. Right. Anything you want to add to that? Well, it just boils right back down to what we said at the beginning. You know, God has given us a book, and we are responsible. We're obligated to live according to it. So, what God says is love. That's love. What God says is righteous, that's righteous. What God says is justice, that's justice. What God says is wicked, that's wicked. And we don't get to make it up. And if you think that you have some category of crime or sin that is so important to you that you're building your life around it and it doesn't pass muster with scripture, you're in a bad way. You need help. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend like you're thinking rightly. I will, if I do that, I am just patting you on the head while you're going down to a road that if you don't repent from it, might lead you straight to hell. Mm-hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you've said so far, uh, you've listed two threats at this point. The first is <laughs> pragmatism. The second, it sounds like really what you're naming is the fear of man. It's, well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's sympathy, misguided sympathy that's not rooted in the scripture and that it's played upon easily because of a, a, an idol of the fear of man. It's, sim, it's, it's, it's maybe genuine sympathy will give the, the, the benefit of the doubt, a genuine caring spirit, um, big heartedness of, of most Christians, I would argue, that, that want to care for the oppressed, care for the downtrodden, care for the hurting. So a genuine sympathy, but a sympathy that's not deeply rooted in scripture and that's coupled with the the need for man's approval. And so it's just getting, it's just Satan's having a field day 
with that. Yeah. yeah. Is that what, is there another label that you would use to describe the well, second threat that we've been? No, I mean, that, that bleeds into it. There's no doubt. It kind of goes into my third thought on this because okay. I'm thinking, uh, you know, secondly, these ideologies, we're just, we're not, we're not prepared to stand against them, man. I mean, we, we are being so quickly manipulated by worldly, godless, enlightenment thinking. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing how deeply embedded enlightenment thinking is in the evangelical world today, as opposed to a, a rigorous, simple, uh, God-centered way of looking at the world where we say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. And uh, the reason two plus two equals four is because God says so. I mean, that sounds like some kind of wooded headed fundamentalist to make that statement. But no, it's true because God created math. And we, we just we're so far from that. And we think, well, no, we're just we're going to use our reasoning without any reference to God. So, I mean, that's that's all part of that mix. But the third one really is, is what you're talking on and leads into it. And I man, we, we don't fear God. Uh, we do not fear God. Um, you, you look at what goes on in the name of Christianity. And uh, even with those that thump their Bibles, and so often there is no fear of God. We fear people. Um, it's it's tragic. I mean, I, you, you saw how quickly many evangelical leaders folded in 2020, and they even thought they were doing the righteous thing and the loving thing because uh, the, the the emperor said you shall not meet, or the emperor said you must meet this way. And whenever you start having civil authorities trying to dictate and tell churches better ways to meet, and I heard it, I heard governors saying, well, look, you know, you, you're reaching more people on Facebook than you are when you meet in your church. I, I'm thinking, come on, what, what, a guy ought to find a different job rather than call himself a pastor and take his cues on how to uh, conduct himself in the household of God from the government authorities. We need, we just need to return to the fear of God. Jesus said we should not fear those who can kill the body, but we should kill, fear him who can kill the body and afterward cast the soul into hell. And I, nobody wants to talk about God like that anymore, but our God kills people. Our God has the authority to kill the body and cast the soul into hell. And if we get a right sense of fearing him, we're not going to fear people. And we're not going to go around just trying to be man pleasers. It's, it, life's too short and we, the, the gospel's too important and heaven and hell are too real. So I, I think more than anything, and this is my own life. I'm not, I'm not causing and saying that I'm immune from this, but I think one thing that we desperately need is massive doses of the fear of God. I mean, we need God to come down among us and just manifest his glory to us in a way that will drive us to our knees and shut our mouths and cause us to repent in sackcloth and ashes saying, Oh God, we are undone. We are undone. Amen. Do with us whatever you will. Amen. I, um, yeah, that like, like Job is like, remember that I'm dust, you know, and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And I, I was profoundly touched. I remember, I'll probably never forget, but when Jared Longshore was kind of, he was reading a manuscript of, or a transcription of a conversation between you and him. It was after uh, you had gone to the hospital and that you had, um, you had fallen over in, in mid sermon from what I gathered. Um, and I remember he was, you know, he was talking about, you know, from the moment you fell over and started to regain some consciousness all the way up to him visiting you in the hospital. And um, one of the scenes that he read from this trans 
transcription, what he had gathered from you and written down when he shared it on the podcast, The Sword and the Trowel. And, uh, one of the scenes was you were in the back of the ambulance and one of the workers was just cursing like a sailor and just uh, just that <laughs> the old King James, you know, filthy lucre, you know, it was just kind of <laughs> just a filthy mouth. And he said that, you you know, you muttered, you could barely even talk, you know, your eyes were closed and you just kind of mut- fear God. And um, and I was just so touched by that. Just, you know, just um, that's what we're missing. And I've, I've said this in my, my preaching and my sermons at, at the local church level a lot, but um, I'm really convinced that um, we have a generation that, that does not appreciate the love of God because they've never been taught to fear God. Uh, the love of God is lost, I think, on a generation that doesn't fear God because the reality is um, the love of God, the gospel is not a message of love. It is for God so loved the world, but it's a particular kind of love. It's grace. It's unmerited favor. It's undeserved love. It's a love because we can love God. We do love God as Christians, um, but we can never have grace for God or mercy for God, right? So you can love a perfect being. God God loves his angelic host that never sinned against him or betrayed him. And um, But but the love that God has for us is it's a particular kind. It's mercy. It's, it's grace. Uh, it's this unmerited favor that God has for us. And, and the beauty of that kind of love, a gracious love, is that it actually grows the more we fear God. Because in the fear of God, what we're doing is we're recognizing the holiness, this thrice holy God, and we're recognizing that I'm, I'm a worm. <laughs> you know, our, our own sinfulness, and not in a self-degrading way, but in an objective, true way, that I've committed cosmic treason against this thrice holy God, my maker. And, and the more I come into awareness of my own sin, and the more I come into awareness through the word of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit uh, of God's holiness, the gap doesn't get smaller, it gets wider. And, and I mean that in subjective terms. In objective terms, through by God's grace, not positional righteousness, which we have in full by justification through faith and not works, but in progressive righteousness and sanctification, we are, we're, we're getting better as Christians. We're getting holier, not worse. But as we're getting holier in an objective sense, in progressive holiness through sanctification, we're, we're, beco- we're it seems like the gap in a, in a subjective sense is getting wider because we're becoming more aware. We're, 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 we're more greatly grieved by the sin which still remains. And so we're getting, gaining a greater awareness of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of, of man. And, and so in a subjective sense, this infinite gap that in, in objective sense is it's infinite, so it really can't get any bigger. But subjectively, in our perception, the gap between us and God, sinful man and holy God, is getting wider. And that's good, uh, because that's what it is to fear God. And that gap, uh, the fear of the Lord, and the gap between holiness, holiness of God and sinfulness of man, what bridges that gap is is the love of God for sinners. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. And so if you have a little gap, right? If, if you don't really see the holiness of God and you don't really see your own sinfulness, um, then ultimately what you have is a little gap. And if you have a little gap, you have a little savior. You have a God who, who didn't so love the world. He just, he kind of loved the world, you know? And, and so I really feel like there's so many churches that preach love, 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 love. But I think it's being lost um, on, on a generation um, that, that has only ever been told about the love of God, but never been told the magnitude of the love of God on the framework, the backdrop of the fear of God that has to do with his holiness and our sin. And, and so I'm, I'm with you 100%. So it sounds like what you're saying, if I could summarize is number one was pragmatism and just really just not sticking to the script, especially with the Lord's Day service. Um, and then number two uh, was I, I kind of, I said the fear of God, but really that's more number three. Number two is just the ideologies themselves. These demonic, you know, they have their origin in the pit of hell. These uh, counterintuitive, they're, they're anti-scripture, anti 
Christianity, ideologies like critical race theory, neo-Marxism, um, all those kinds of things. Um, and then communism is really, it seems like where, where we're headed. Um, and then the third one is part of the reason we're being played by these ideologies isn't just because they're so intellectually robust and we're so impressed because we're, you know, just simpletons, but it's, it's really playing on not just our intellect, the church's intellect, but our emotions. Because at the end of the day, um, we love people, yeah, um, but we also really want to be loved by people. We want to be liked. We want approval, the fear of man. So pragmatism, godless ideologies, fear of man. Is that is that a good summary? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Okay. So let me let me do this with you. If you if you got a little bit more time, I just I okay. I wanted to pick your brain with this. So I, I wrote this down. So I'll read it. So I don't lose my thoughts. But I wrote uh, Vodibachum recently published his newest book called Fault Lines, where he explicitly names specific evangelical leaders such as David Platt, uh, Matt Chandler, Mark Dever, uh, Ligon Duncan, who wrote the forward to Woke Church. Um, and so so how serious of an issue is this rising divide? For instance, so kind of really getting to the ideologies and this this chasm that seems to be forming uh, within the evangelical church and even reformed churches. For instance, I personally, I was previously, I I don't know if you know this about me, but I was previously an Acts 29 pastor um, a few years ago, and I was a part of the Acts 29 movement for for a while. Uh, But I chose to leave Acts 29 um, about three years ago after Eric Mason, who continues to be an integral part of the leadership of Acts 29. uh, He was on the board, the the, uh, International Global Board, for a while. I'm not sure if he is any longer. Uh, But integral leader um, and personal friend of Matt Chandler, he published his infamous book, Woke Church. Um, So what counsel, I guess, is my question. How serious of an issue are these things? But also, what counsel would you give to other pastors especially younger pastors like myself, um, who are presently wrestling with a decision. So for me, it was Acts 29, but in your neck of the woods with the SBC, what counsel would you give to that young pastor who says to you, he comes to you and he says, I'm thinking about joining the SBC or the guy who's already in the SBC and says, I'm thinking about leaving the SBC. What what would you say, and even making it broader than SBC, but SBC, Acts 29, whatever it might be, denominations and networks, affiliation, at this time, in this heated moment with the evangelical church, how serious do these ideologies play into, uh, is it dangerous to be a part of, is there a point when you would leave the SBC? And what counsel do you give to young guys who are, who are impressionable and, and can easily be influenced? Do you, do you tell them, hey, just be that independent Baptist church? Or what, what, do you, what counsel do you yeah. give? Well, I, I- I think I've picked up on maybe two or three questions in, uh, in what Sorry. you're asking there. No, that's Fair. okay, because it is complicated. Uh, one is, what, what, what are your associational connections going to be? And, you know, I've been Southern Baptist my whole life. Founders Ministries was born in the uh, context of the SBC. We're not a Southern Baptist entity at all, but all the men that were involved in the beginning were Southern Baptists. We've certainly branched out from that. From the beginning, we wanted to be genuinely Catholic. We wanted to have a true ecumenical spirit among us, but recognizing their boundaries to that, not the way that Catholic and ecumenism is so often uh, portrayed and played out today. So we've never been just SBC, but we've always argued that there's reasons to stay in. And I've been able to say up until the last few years, Um, Look at the trajectory. The the trajectory is good. It's better than what it was in the 60s and 70s with the inerrancy movement, the conservative resurgence, and there 
began to be these recovery of uh, good confessional statements and uh, people uh, teaching in our institutions who say, yes, we believe these confessions. We, we are inerrantists. We're not ashamed to be known as inerrantists. And so that's always been good. But uh, the last few years, one of the things that is so pernicious about this new stuff that's flown in under critical social justice that Bodhi writes about in his book is that many of the, if not most of the leaders of the social justice movement are self-professed inerrantists and even some confessional people. Uh, it, it breaks my heart. I mean, the, I, the, the guys on the other side of that fault line for me, many of them have been friends of mine for years and years and years. And we're just, we're not walking together anymore. It's so it's more pernicious than just going against the neo-Orthodox or the liberals. Uh, these are not liberals. My friend, Tom Nettles uh, has, we've talked about this a lot and some people today. So this is just, this is just liberalism. This is just liberalism. Well, you know, I, I get what they're saying. But it is not if you're going to unpack it doctrinally. But Tom came up with this phrase, and I've not found one better. He says, what we're facing today is the social gospel without the liberalism. It's the social gospel movement, but these guys all believe in substitutionary atonement. They all believe in the authority of scripture, but they're still buying in to that unmoored uh, social agenda that is not arising from law and gospel. So denominationally or associationally or connectionally, those are tough calls. And I, you know, a guy, a man's got to stand before God with his own conscience and decide uh, how he's going to associate. The reality is that if you, uh, however you draw the lines, you're going to find differences between you and others. The question is, what, what differences can you stand and maintain some fellowship? The SBC is a loose knit uh, group of churches. The Baptist faith and message is kind of the the main statement of faith. You don't have to sign the Baptist faith and message to be SBC. We're 1689 in our church and we, we can affiliate freely with the SBC. It's a voluntary uh, type of association. And as you said at the beginning, if the SBC, the SBC matters and it's, it doesn't matter the way a lot of people in the SBC think it matters. You know, a lot of people are, are saying there's a guy who wrote a book years ago, the SBC is God's last best or last greatest hope. You know, and what what a what a almost blasphemous title that is. God doesn't need the SBC, but the SBC matters. And if all the good churches leave the SBC tomorrow, the SBC is not going to die the next day. It's going to go on. It's just going to be in the hands now more fully of bad churches and bad thinking leaders. And it's going to do more damage than it, it could do right now. But if it can be recovered, then it can work as it has in previous two or three decades for great good. And that's my hope. And so I, I, I think it's worth fighting for. Uh, it's worth looking at my fellow Southern Baptists in the eye and say, you know what? I think you're wrong. And I don't want to go where you're taking us. And if you're going to try to take us there, I'm going to stand against you. I'm going to oppose you. I'm going to do it as a brother. I'm not going to use the world's tactics, but I'm not going to play games with you either. And I think the path you're going down is wrong. And I don't think we can cooperate unless you repent or I repent. God shows me something or God shows you something. And if he doesn't, then we just need to come to a parting of the ways. But, but right now we're having that debate inside. And so, you know, maybe I think coming out of Nashville, we'll have a good indication of where we are. Uh, a lot of people are saying, well, if it doesn't go my way in Nashville, I'm leaving. And, and quite honestly, I, you know, there are people have said that if we repudiate uh, resolution 19 or Re resolution nine from 2019, or if we repudiate CRTI, that they're leaving. And I hope they will. I hope we repudiate it and I hope they leave. 
I mean, I don't mean that in an ugly way. They just need to go find people they agree with. You know, they go find people you agree with, cooperate with, and do your thing. But there are other people saying, man, if we don't rescind Resolution 19, we're out. Well, look, we didn't get in this fix overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight. I mean, under the best of circumstances, if God were to show us great mercy, we're looking at, you know, five to 10 years to try to get things back on a better track. And even then, once we do it, we're going to have to deal with that first issue I talked about. How did we get here? How did we get here? This happened on the conservative, evangelical, inerrantist, and in many respect, reformed watch. I mean, there, there, there are reformed Southern Baptists that are driving this train, so-called reformed Southern Baptists, and it breaks my heart. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to do more than just say, "Hey, look, we got the confession," or "Hey, look, we we signed the Nashville statement or the Danvers statement." So what? We're going to have to drill down and look at what does this text say, and what is your attitude toward it. We we don't want to just have you mouth words of affirmation. So that's that's one issue. But the other issue is these ideologies. Yeah, I think it's the greatest threat to the uh, advance of the gospel in, the, in my generation, my day. I, I haven't seen anything like it. It's pernicious, and it's pernicious because it's captivating good guys. You don't. I mean, these are good guys. They're being sucked into this stuff. And um, again, I, I've lost friends. You know, I, I'm yeah, leave it with God. It's it's heartbreaking to me, but. Um, there are men that I've esteemed, men whose books we've used in our church for years we don't use anymore. Uh, not because the books have changed, the books are still good, but I don't want any of our people to get this book and then get the guy's latest teaching because what he's saying today is contrary to what he was saying 10 years ago. And the fault lines are there. And I cannot, I cannot walk together with anybody who thinks that critical race theory, intersectionality are good, useful analytical tools. And, and they're saying that uh, these tools can be employed in kind of a neutral way. I cannot go along with anybody who says that, oh yeah, Black Lives Matters is a good movement and we ought to be affirming Black Lives Matters. I mean, that is naive at best, but it's that's the very best I can say about it. So any anyone that's going to be duped by that and is gonna buy into that agenda, is on the other side of the fault for me. And I can, I love you. And, you know, I know I got my blind spots. If I'm wrong, please help me. I've said this to, <laughs> I've said this to more Christian leaders that I can remember. Look, you know, we need you in this fight and we need you to, to, to man up right now and deal with this. And if you're not willing to, because you don't think it's right, then I need your help. I, I need you to help me. Would you please help me? Because I think that I'm seeing something here that's really serious. And, you know, we're going to have to leave it with God and he'll sort it out on the day of judgment. We'll all be praising his grace on that day because uh, none of us will get in on our own merits or righteousness or having seen things just right. But we are all stewards yeah. while we live. Amen. Yeah, I, that last thing you said, you know, you know, we'll, one day we'll all be all those who are in Christ will be celebrating with the risen Lord and, you know, we'll see him as he is. We'll be like him. First John says, and I can't, you know, I think about being fully sanctified. I think about it, you know, a glorified physical body, but I also, I so look forward to, and I, I can't imagine, I, I'm sure that you've experienced uh, substantial, exponentially more loss of friendship than I have, but I keep thinking over these last couple of years, I can't wait for glorified friendships. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's not just me as an individual that, that needs to be further sanctified and, and needs to see Christ as he is sinless and be sinless uh, like him on that final day. But, um, 
I can't wait for sinless friendships, glorified friendships. Um, and I just feel like the last two years, I think um, that there's just been so much um, with with so much false teaching and heresy and all these godless ideologies. There's been so much um, relational uh, pain. It's just been you know a, a relationally hard season where I've experienced it. You know, at a, at a smaller level, at a local level, with you know even you know, members in the church and uh, a couple elders, and uh, where you just um, I don't know. You just, yeah, it's difficult. And, uh, and I think you're right. The hardest part about it is, um, it just seemed like I, I wasn't around for these things. And so, you know, but, but I feel like you've said it enough and I could take your word for it and other guys who were around and fought those battles of inerrancy and those kinds of things. And it just seems like this, this present battle, part of what makes it so dangerous is it's so subtle. It's just, it's, um, some of those things, they were just clear. I think it was Packer, J.I. Packer, who said, um, you'll you'll be able to help me with this but what's the hebrew word that one one particular group of people wasn't able to pronounce shibboleth or shibboleth. do you know what shibboleth yeah. yeah yeah and uh and i think it was packer who you know like cuz some guys wanted to use a different word than inerrancy and he was like no sometimes we just need to have that word that you either can pronounce or you can't you know to know <laughs> you know it's kind of you know as the dividing line so you're it's it's visible so people have to wear the jersey you can see if they're on my team or not and uh, right now, man, it's it's just it's gotten blurry. Um, but I think you said this earlier in the episode. And I'm glad you did. Um, it's getting clearer because that's the yeah. beauty of the church. And 2,000 years of church history is um, that that when we're confronted with false ideologies and things that are counter to Scripture, the church comes together and it sharpens its doctrine. It sharpens its theology. And um, and and I feel like today, you know. A lot of guys like me, you know, like who are learning from guys like you, we can we can spot it, you know, in a way that two just even two years ago, you know, we're like, what what is that critical what theory again? And you know what I mean? And what, you know, and now, you know, I mean, I felt for like the longest time, I felt like there was like two years I'm watching YouTube videos of critical race theory, and I can I didn't hear one of you guys even be able to define it, you know. And now and now it's like you know there's just more and more clarity, and you know, and you guys are putting out much uh, just better, sharper. Um, and clear and simpler, you know, because w- when you when you understand something, when you really understand something, I think of Dr. Sproul, you know, um, you're not only do you know it, but you can communicate it at a lower level to even to a child. That's when you know you're really. St- and I feel like the church is starting to get there. The Lord always reserves for himself. You know, when the enemy comes in like a flood, he raises a standard up against it and uh, he reserves a remnant for himself. And uh, and with that remnant, I think there's this this clarifying of doctrine and theology to the point where now you really equip the saints with simple, um, I mean, it's big issues, so people should care and they need to do thorough study, but uh, simpler definitions, uh, simpler explanations of, of things that, that were really intellectually intimidating uh, when it first started coming on the scene. And now and now I think guys like me are, are an example of starting to find some handles on it and to where now I, I can I, you know spot it and and preach against it and and address it and apply the scripture rightly and so i feel encouraged with what god's doing but it's been painful and the relational piece has been part of it so all that being said let's go ahead and end our episode we do this tom we you know i feel like you should be sympathetic because we kind of got it from you but you guys have the armory and so we do a similar thing we call our club members our responders and we ask our guests with a our show theology applied if they just stick around for five minutes and address kind of a bonus question and so i always kind of read the bonus question to kind of uh whet the appetite of our listeners a little incentive so our bonus question is is this all right so we have critical theory that's the big banner and then we have critical race theory as it pertains to ethnicity 
Um, I feel like somebody, and maybe you're the guy for it, but somebody's got to write a book one of these days called Critical Church Theory. <laughs> and so this is where I'm going with it. There's, you know, we, we always were categorizing, you know, intersections, the more, the more oppressed groups that you can claim, you know, identity with, and, you know, the more intersection points that you gain and the more that, you know, you, the more you've been oppressed and therefore the more power and those things you should be given. Well, in a church setting, I can't help but think, aside from all the other, all the other, different ways that we could identify, whether it be ethnicity or social class or economics. Um, one of the clearest is leaders and church leaders and church members. And so I guess my question is not, not, not necessarily if this has happened in your specific local church, but with other pastors that you counsel and that you, you know, that you do life with and disciple and, and that you have friendships with, have you noticed a critical church theory in the sense of have you noticed pastors today um, being more in danger of being accused of being abusive or being accused of being domineering than in previous times? And I'm not talking about the accusations that are true, objectively true. Or that, yeah, that guy needs to be removed from ministry. But have you noticed a growing unhealthy sensitivity among church members as critical theory has kind of become the, the just the, the air that people are breathing in. And as this is just this dominant idea in the culture, have you noticed that seeping into the church where pastors, uh, by virtue of having power, you know, in, in church dynamics, by being in leadership, are, are more likely to be accused or more susceptible to being accused of being abusive when they're actually really just being faithful to the scripture. So I know that's a long way of saying it, but that's the bonus question. I'm going to have Tom come back on here for five minutes, but let's go ahead and close by giving Tom the final word. Would you just tell our listeners uh, how they can follow you, keep up with you, and maybe something they could be praying for you for? Yeah, well, appreciate that. Uh, certainly you can find out just about everything you want to know at founders.org. Uh, www.founders.org. That's our website. Uh, we have a YouTube channel that's very active and it's got tons of material on there as well. Uh, we do have the Founders Alliance membership. So we've got a lot of material that we're producing for those that have come on board to support us. We're grateful for that. Um, the Institute of Public Theology.org is where you can go to find out about IOPT and our classes begin this fall. Tom Nettles will teach one. I'll teach one. Our convocation is August the 28th. 2021. It'll be in Cape Coral, Florida. I'm uh, really looking forward to this. We're going to have Dr. Everett Piper, who will be our convocation speaker. Uh, Everett was most recently the uh, past or the uh, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and he is a fireball. He sees these things. He stood against them long before uh, most of other public intellectuals have. So you can follow us there. I'm on Twitter, Tom Askell at Twitter. I think I'm on Facebook. Uh, that same way too, and, and Instagram. So you can you can find founders on all, all of those social media outlets. But if you go to founders.org, you can learn everything you want to about us. Okay, great. Anything that we could be uh, praying for you? Yeah, do pray for this conference, uh, be it resolved. Uh, June 14th in Nashville, we're almost sold out. I'm excited about that. But um, man, we would love to be able to accommodate a thousand people that uh, the room won't hold quite that many, but it looks like we're going to fill up what it will hold and it'll be a pivotal time. And, and then the SBC that follows on the 15th and 16th, um, let's pray that God will give us wisdom and that everyone who shows up, the pastors there especially would be wise and, and bold, courageous and humble to speak clearly. Uh, our 2022 conference in January in Cape Coral, Florida, Southwest Florida is going to be on the doctrine of the church, militant and triumphant. If you'd pray for that, we still have some details to work out on that, but uh, man, Southwest Florida, in January is a great place to be. The weather's usually very great. 
And uh, we had a great time this year. And so uh, those conferences coming up, the Wield the Sword project you mentioned earlier, we've just completed the first season. So the fifth episode is about ready to drop on education. We've got the first four episodes on YouTube. We, we started out on Amazon Prime uh, and they've uh, now that. invited us not to be part of that anymore. So, <laughs> oh, they, uh, they invited you not to be. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> how, hospi- how, yeah. how hospitable of them. Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, so we're going to be on YouTube now um, making that all available. And we've got two more seasons. We got one season we've already shot a lot of the footage for, but um, uh, it takes a lot of money to do that. And and quite honestly, right now, we don't have all the resources for season two. So uh, we're just praying that God will raise up resources for that as well as the Institute. And, you know, we we believe whatever whatever God wants done, he's going to finance. So uh, we're confident in that. But just pray for us that God will God will not let us stray and that uh, he'll keep us humble and give us boldness. Yes, sir. Thanks, Pastor Tom. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Sure, my joy. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com slash offer. We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com slash offer. And thank you for your generous support.